Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures. Through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad-free browsing on the website, free single track stickers in the mail, and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com support. Thank you and happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be recapping some of my favorite conversations from the Single Tracks Podcast in 2021. So there are four main areas that we like to cover on Single Tracks and also in the podcast. And the first of those areas is mountain bike trails. And so this year we talked to a number of mountain bike trail builders, also local riders who live in places like Moab and Sedona, and also a number of advocates, both for trails and for the environment. We also talked to professional athletes, skills and fitness coaches, and even a few product designers and industry leaders. So one of the most enthusiastic guests that we had on the show was, no surprise, a mountain bike skills instructor by the name of Jeremiah Stone. Uh, He's taught hundreds of mountain bikers across the U.S., and he's also a freelance trail builder and machine operator, which gives him a unique perspective on riding and on trails. One of the questions that I asked Jeremiah was about today's mountain bikes and whether or not that makes it easier to be a good biker, uh, especially compared to some of the bikes that were available, you know, a decade ago to riders. We even touched on a topic that I hear from riders from time to time, which is that everyone should ride on a hardtail. And that's even a topic that we covered in an article on single tracks. But here's what Jeremiah had to say about today's mountain bikes. Well, do you think today's mountain bikes make it easier to be a good biker compared to maybe some of the equipment that was available in the old days? Sounds like you started out on, you know, pretty basic, pretty basic equipment and, and you, you know, probably struggled with it. But do you think like today's riders have it a little easier? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of, um, you know, in our, in our clinics and in our lessons, we, we make sure to never, never bash anybody's equipment or never really talk about it because like, you know, the, the best, you know, is the best you've ridden, Mm. you know, people that have been on new bikes, like they understand how good new bikes are, but you know, you get a lot of people that have never been on a good bike. Like you don't want to tell them how, how much better the new bikes are because then they're, you know, anytime something goes wrong, they blame their bike. And it's like, ah, you know, like ultimately the best bike is the one you're on. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think new bikes are, are way more forgiving. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword because you got to go faster and ride them harder to really bring them to life versus like you get on like an old rigid 26 and, you know, 
basic trail speed feels like you're just giving her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, versus like a modern enduro bike, like, you know, you're, you know, it feels like you're just waiting for the trail to get rowdy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, the equipment's amazing. You know, I, I think that's a, a reflection of the progressive mindset of the sport as a whole. And I, I really enjoy it, but, um, you know, I try to keep people from getting too hung up on it. So, yeah when you're doing demonstrations and you're in the clinics, like what kind of bike are you on? Are you on like a really blingy enduro bike and showing people how to do things or, or a more basic one? And then also, yeah. What about that? Like is a hardtail a, a better vehicle to learn on before you get into these bikes that are, are more capable? Well, a little, a little personal anecdote there. I, I live in a camper and van setup, and I travel with five bikes and a dirt bike. Oh wow! So, <laughs> I like wow. all the bikes, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, for teaching, I I try to, I try to equip myself with something that is relatable for the students. Okay. So, like, that's usually going to be my trail bike, which is, you know, it was a Santa Cruz Tall Boy, and it's currently an Evil Offering, and um. Yeah, it is a little blingy because I I like that. I'm I'm a I'm a gearhead, so I like <laughs> nice parts and all that. And I really enjoy putting bikes together and all that. So it's it's a little blingy, but um. Yeah. Did the students ever look at that and say like, oh, well, no wonder he can do that. He's on that awesome bike. You think, or or do they get it? It's not as bad with the with the trail bike as it was whenever like you know I did notice I did a couple clinics. I've got um my race bike is actually a a mega tower that's all you know, push suspension and, you know, just, just way overkill for anything anybody would ever need. But, um, I love it. And like, it was, that one was definitely like that one had kind of crossed the line. Like anytime I went down anything or off anything, everybody's like, Oh, well, of course, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me show you, I'll jump on that bike too. I can do that. Yeah. They're like, well, anybody can do it with that. You know, it's <laughs> like, so, you know, I, that was wherever I was like, okay, I need to get a trail bike and make it a little bit more relatable. And then, um, I've actually, I've, I also picked up a hardtail that I travel with that I use for like flow checking and then also for like training and all that. And, um, it's just super versatile bike, but I kind of keep it ready. And I know one of these days I'm going to show up to a clinic and it's just going to be like all hardtails and I'm, it's going to be like the stars are going to align and I'm going to do a clinic on my hardtail just to show them like, you know, here we go, you know, just kind of to make it relatable because you know, mountain bikers, you know how mountain bikers are. Like we like to argue on the internet and we like to make excuses. Um, <laughs> right. That's just, that's just how mountain bikers are. So mm-hmm. yeah, I try to keep it relatable for everybody as, as well as I can. And, um, having the trail bike definitely helps with that. And, you know, if, you know, if worse comes to worse, you got somebody that's really hung up on it. I'm, I'm not above grabbing their bike and doing a feature on their bike. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to kind of break through, I mean, a barrier is a barrier and my job as an instructor is to help break through that. So you know, whatever tool that takes. Yeah. So one of the other things that I asked Jeremiah about is how to time mountain bike jumps. And for me personally, this is always something that I struggle with trying to figure out the right amount of speed that I need to carry into a jump to maybe get over a double or to just figure out where I'm going to land. And here's what Jeremiah had to share about that. Timing seems to be a big factor when it comes to landing jumps and particularly when you're trying to clear doubles, for example. How can riders develop a good sense of timing and speed? I know that's something that I struggle with. Is there, is there a way to, to work on that? Well, when's the last time you went out and hit a jump more than twice? 
<laughs> right. Good question. Especially when you're, when you're on the trail, right? If you're not, yeah, at the bike park, just sessioning or the pump track. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing. You know, everybody, you know, everybody wants those things, but people want to, they want shortcuts, you know, they want somebody on a video to tell them what's going to fix it. But like, really, you know, you got to find a jump that you like mm-hmm. and that is, you know, that's the right setting. And then you've got to go out and play with your bike. I mean, you got to, if you want to learn how to time the jump, right? Like you got to go and ride the jump and practice your compression and practice the release of that compression and timing it with the, you know, the natural compression of a jump face and, mm-hmm. you know, really dialing that in. And, you know, that takes repetition and time on the bike. And it also, um, you know, any rider will tell you like, and any, any builder will tell you too, like not all jumps are created equal. So, you know, in my clinics, you know, I actually travel with a set of ramps that we use for uh, ninja clinics and, um, it's a really nice setup and I love the ramps because it's super consistent. The lip is in the same place. The face is the same all the time. You can set it up wherever and, you know, you can get riders a lot of repetition on that ramp. You know, and it's the same every time. They're not having to worry about like some some jump lines where it's like, okay, well, this one's got a lot of pop, and then this one doesn't have any, and then you got to hit the brakes for this one. It's like you're working with people that are just now figuring these things out. Like you need consistent. So, yeah, we use those ramps, and they're they're just fantastic. We've actually been developing them, developing them more and more for our clinics to make them better and better. So, it's a really good setup. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, I've been able to get to the point where I'm comfortable with a particular jump, you know, like you said, if I'm able to do it over and over, but then how does that translate into like something you've never seen before? You know, like you're comfortable with your jump or your local trails, but then how do you kind of translate that timing into something that that might be new? Oh man, that's a good one. Um, you know, get comfortable with your jump and then find, find some of the other ones around there. And like, before you hit it, look at it, like, what's similar about it, what's different about it, what are some of the variables and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of trying to identify that thing, developing that eye, like, do I, is the approach faster? Is the gap, you know, is the table or the gap bigger? Is it more poppy? You know, that kind of thing, you know, that's where your know, tabletops are, are such a good thing. You know, you can, you can go and kind of tell people it's like, um, test driving the jump when you got a table, <laughs> yeah. you know, you can kind of roll in at a, at a safe speed and, and you can feel at a lower speed where you're not fully committed to, to airing it out. Like you can feel where the lip is and you can feel, you know, the, you know, kind of where the timing is and kind of work into that and then start dancing with it from there. And then ultimately it's, it's going to be, it's going to be ride time, you know, exposing yourself to as many of those different jumps as you can and like paying attention to what you're doing and what the jump is and what's going on there. And, yeah. and then taking, you know, you really need to have that eye and that understanding, you know, for whenever jumps start getting a little bit higher risk, you know, if you start looking at doubles, like you better be able to read a jump face a little bit, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to just pedal into it and hope for the best. And then, you know, another big thing that I tell people with, with, you know, going from tables to gaps is, you know, think about what you're doing, you know, in moto, you know, I get you picked a lot of stuff on, on the dirt bikes and never come up short, never, it's not even an option. Like, I mean, oh, you know, first, first time you hit it, uh-huh. I'm going deep, I'm, I'm sending it too far and I'm, I'm preparing to land a flat. Like, yeah, okay. you know, that's how I'm doing it the first time. And then if I, if I come up a little bit short, then I'm actually in the sweet spot. You know, if I go a little bit long, 
it's probably okay, you know, hopefully okay, but you know, definitely better than, you know, nose casing something and going on your face. That's for sure. So. Right. Right. So, so yeah, your advice is to, to really like overestimate if anything. Well, another topic that I'm really personally interested in is adventuring. I love reading books about Everest expeditions and people doing first ascents of mountains or, you know, big bike packing trips around the world. And one of the folks that I got to interview this year was Dr. Kate Leeming, who is an explorer and adventurer who's biked tens of thousands of miles around the world. She biked around the continent of Australia, where she's from, and has also done some big expeditions in Africa and has plans to do an expedition in the Antarctic. So I talked to Kate uh, about how she deals with some of the struggles and challenges with riding, particularly on her trip in Namibia, where she was riding in the sand into a headwind and, you know, really not making a whole lot of progress as she was going along. Here's what she had to say about having the right attitude. Well, it's all about attitude and, um, (laughs) You know, it, it, it's like it was the perfect training for Antarctica because I was, you know, mm-hmm. to learn how to deal with that mentally. And, um, you know, normally on a bike, you know, you have your cycle computer and you're watching that probably and you think I've got to do this amount of distance. And you, you can usually hit those because it's, mm-hmm. even if it's a bit slower or something, you can hit them. But <laughs> I don't know what, what I'm going to hit with the next pedal stroke, let alone anything else. <laughs> Yeah. It could be demoralizing to look at the GPS and to say, my goodness, it's been an hour and I've gone like two kilometers. Yeah. Well, certainly five kilometers an hour was, was what I was down to a few times. And I'm going, okay, I need to do 50 Ks a day to get my expedition done. Um, so, so yeah. So the first bit was very hard to, I was just managed managing to, you know, just creep up a little bit, you know, get over mm-hmm. the 50 a few, few times and I was a couple of times under. So I was, it was right on my limit. So I was right with that. Um, and also when I do these expeditions, even though it, it would help to be super fit, uh, it's crazy putting them together. It's probably the hardest thing I do is pulling all the ends together, getting everything, you know, all the people or, um, mm-hmm. Just every, you know, moving out of my comfort zone in Melbourne here, and you know, traveling around the world to get to a place and with everything yeah. that you need and test mm-hmm. to make sure my knees are right. I do some sort of intensive training in the gym. I try to get out for a couple of rides to make sure I'm, you know, it's real. But then, you know, and often I even get a little bit sick before I start because it's so much stress. Oh, so yeah, I'm sure. then the start from the, like you'd think is the most desolate place and the wind is, you know, every, especially in the afternoons, but not only, um, it was just amazing. So, so I was just mm. trying to, with my mind to just stick, okay, let's just break this down into little goals. Don't, don't worry about distances. Just try to get the time done and, mm-hmm. and I'm going to, you know, keep moving forwards and, and that's, that's distance I don't have to do again, you know. Um, yeah. And and it's just trying to find that right space in my mind, and and it's such even though it's desolate, even though it's harsh, even all, you know all of those things, it's also exciting. You know, I can't you know pinch mm. myself. I can't believe I'm doing this. How, how do you end up cycling <laughs> down a beach in the middle of Namibia, or not the middle, mm-hmm. but on on the edge in this place that's taken 
shipwrecks. It's the most treacherous, treacherous coastline pretty much in the world. Um, uh, uncharted territory, you know, it's, you know, coming across, you know, ships have been rusted down to nothing. A lot of them are no, no longer there or mm. frigate like the Dunedin Star and all there's a tiny little bit of metal left and that's it. Oh, and, wow. and and those stories, you know, like ships used to land, but it didn't guarantee that they survived because they didn't know where they were. Right. There was like nothing around yeah. hundreds of kilometres and they didn't have any water or whatever. So, so actually just landing on the beach, you know, saved them temporarily, but not always you know, didn't, not all of them made it. So mm-hmm. uh, most yeah. of them, they did in some way if they got an SOS signal out. But yeah, yeah. so so mentally, if you focus on all of those things and thinking this is, this is quite amazing, I'm doing something that no one's done before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I just love that kind of challenge. It's such a privilege. So if you focus on those kind of things, it also helps to get through mentally. Well, one of the interviews where I learned the most, I would say, is uh, when I spoke with Renee Hutchins. She's a mountain biker, storyteller, and artist living in Colorado, and she's a member of the Dene Nation, which is a Native American tribe here in the U.S. We talked a lot about land acknowledgement and also environmental justice issues, and here's what Renee had to say about some of the land where a lot of our favorite mountain bike trails are located and what the Ute Land Trust is doing to help protect those lands. Yes, this is uh, something that I plan on talking a lot more about uh, this coming year and, you know, just about the land trust model and what that is and what that could mean in terms of partnering giving back or engaging into healing those relationships with native peoples Mm -hmm. Uh, but the ute land trust specifically it was established in 2018 um, by the ute indian tribe uh, to assist in the healing of those deep wounds left by the injustice Mm -hmm. of violent removal of their people from their homelands uh, Mm -hmm. which encompass utah colorado uh, new mexico and arizona so what every land trust will look slightly different because you know it's important to note that the tribal nations you know they're unique each one is unique in terms Mm -hmm. of their language and culture and so you know we're not this monolith and so that's important to keep in mind and so uh, if you look at that and how that works for land trust is that each one is going to be different because while colonization and that violent removal or uh, land dispossession in- impacts all of us, mm-hmm. we can see that they're going to be in different regions geographically and with their traditional knowledges and what they're doing, it's going to, it's going to vary. Uh, but I know for the Ute land, we have uh, through donations of land as well as through cultural and conservation easements that they're restoring land stewardship and that return of their ancestral lands. Mm-hmm. Um, and by by having that land uh, and stewardship restored, they they're able to have ongoing traditional conservation efforts and are reclaiming traditional knowledge today. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Is that something that's happening in other parts of the country as well, or is this sort of a new model? You mentioned uh, that the the Ute Land Trust was just established a couple of years ago, which is crazy that it took that long. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So yeah, there's a, a whole history on the, this organization called Land Trust Alliance, and they actually have a, a web page that kind of describes, um, you know, what what land trusts are. And I, mm-hmm. I think that uh, it it actually came about before, you know, you know, when when the uh, Ute land was established. You know, these were conversations that were having that were happening in the nineties. Um, but I, I think it's uh, important to know. I, I actually appreciate one of these uh, quotes from uh, a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And there's a quote that says, uh, in the settler mine, land was property, real mm-hmm. estate, capital, or natural resources. But to our people, it was everything. Identity, the connection to our ancestors, the home of our non-human kinfolk, our pharmacy, our library, the source of all that sustained us. And that, to me, is really a powerful quote because it shows that this idea of ownership and land is is not something that that where this is where land trust came about. Um, that's a very uh, colonial or settler like definition of like this is my land. I'm going to stake it. I'm going to claim mm-hmm. it. It's nobody else's. Um, but it's it's not that way for indigenous people. It, we we connect with the land as as more than just this, you know, physical ownership. You know that mm-hmm. we you know oftentimes I'll say uh, to others that that we are the land and that the land is us, mm-hmm. um, and that these are our relatives, and so it's that's why these land trusts are are huge, and um, you know they're not they don't just come about. Um, just by land donations. I know that there's some in Northern California that, you know, are supported by voluntary uh, kind of like a land tax Mm -hmm. um, that basically people in this region uh, realize that they are capitalizing on stolen land. Um, Mm -hmm. And so as part of this, you know, there's these uh, really city and urban areas like in San Jose and San Francisco where people will, you know, who live there will see just buildings and concrete, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, it's hard for them to visualize that this was native land to yeah. begin with. And there's native peoples that are living in, in Northern California today. And, but they don't, there's no way that they're going to be like, okay, I want to take away San Francisco. And, <laughs> right. you know, this that's going to, right. There's going to, that's going to stay around, but um, the the native people there are just saying like hey like we are we're still here and you know mm-hmm. we very much like need these um, traditional medicine and plants and so there's been some cool like community gardens and uh, shared uh, spaces where uh, a conservation you know a non-indigenous conservation land base will go into an agreement with the tribe and say hey let's let's both use this land you know for our mission for mm-hmm. and for what you need as well and so there's like i said there's many different uh ways this looks and uh i know that as as cyclists like last year we were i don't think there's one place in the u.s that didn't feel the impact of wildfires mm. yeah. you know it was very smoky and it affected our ability just to be outdoors i mean of course mm-hmm. covid was also happening right. simultaneously but um out of out of this uh horrific situation there was a tribe in northern california that was part of their 
function of their land trust was actually uh, practicing uh, traditional, uh, you know, fire management mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to w- work with the state of California to do this. So here's a, here's another example of how land trust, you know, it, it's, it really is a collaborative effort and, and benefits everyone. One of the interviews that I was probably most excited slash nervous about was with Fabio Widmer. And I've been watching Fabio's videos online for years now and just am blown away every time I watch him. Whenever he has a new video come out, I probably watch it at least a dozen times because they're so good and there's so many tricks and they're long too. He doesn't do just, you know, short little three minute shreddits. These are usually like epic films that must take an incredible amount of planning and uh, obviously a lot of skill to execute as well. So I got to talk to Fabio early in the year about his video home office uh, and asked him about some of the tricks that he wanted to include in the video, uh, but possibly wasn't able to. And I also asked him whether he considers himself a perfectionist. Here's what he had to say. Um, I can, it can definitely happen, but I, think like most of the time I can really judge um, uh, my abilities and I kind of like know what I could do and you know most of the tricks like home office was super it was super funny because I had those like couple of crazy ideas and uh, the the things I did in the in the video and I, I mean like honestly I wasn't sure if any of those tricks will ever work or not or if it's just like in my mind that it can work <laughs> so um yeah, but when it, uh, like theoretically, I thought, well, yeah, this this might work, and if if I just like try those things over and over again, there has to be the the try when it works, and um, <laughs> yeah, it should be, and that was uh, home office all about, just like trying you know those tricks over and over again, and not giving up pretty much you know there were tricks like the basketball trick where i hit the basketball made my rear wheel and it went into into the basket so um, that was that was one where i was sure well i like i don't think it's gonna work <laughs> but then you know i had a couple of tries and i didn't really hit my hit my uh rear wheel uh on the ball and i was like yeah well this this might be tricky but then there was a try where i hit it actually where i hit the ball with my rear wheel and it was like yeah well as we had lockdown we were you know we didn't really have any time pressure and i mean we were at home so we were pretty much just like messing around and uh, doing things where we weren't sure if they're gonna work but then in the end like honestly like all of them somehow worked out i mean the basketball tricks trick I think took you know five or six hundred tries until we got it, but um, it's yeah, it's quite funny that everything worked out, uh, which I didn't think in the beginning. But um, yeah, with enough tries, you can do quite a lot. And also, you know, those tricks they weren't you know like super super technical tricks, uh, riding wise. I would say it was more like you know some funny things uh some fun things which you have to try over and over again and you and it's 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 gonna it's gonna be luck if it's gonna happen and if it's gonna work we must have to have a lot of patience to do that to to be able to try it over and over again i mean how many times uh did like the the dart trick take for you yeah there, there was another one like we were like we were actually playing dart um a day before we had the idea 
or like at the same day when we had the idea and the next day we tried to film it and we were playing guard and uh my friend hannes was uh, like uh, he he um said to me well this would be amazing if you would like be able to shoot a dart pin with your bike and i was like yeah well there's no way how to do it but then we were like yeah well maybe there could be a way um that it might work and uh we're just bringing the bike and i was just like trying to hit it with my handlebar and somehow we saw that it's going into that direction but it was like far away from you know working so we said well if we're gonna give this enough tries we might it might work <laughs> and then the next day we were trying to do it and we were not able to do it and um it was just also super tiring and uh then like the next day we uh we tried it again and like in overall i think i got like six punches punctures or seven. Oh wow <laughs> it was just like a pain in the ass trying that trick and knowing well uh, i might get another puncture now and have to repair it yeah so that so that wasn't ideal but then i think also after four or five hundred tries it it worked mm -hmm. yeah geez four or five hundred times that's crazy well do you consider yourself a perfectionist do you get really angry or or what happens when you can't land a trick and you're you're just you're having a hard time with it i think i'm definitely a perfectionist yeah uh, when it comes to that and uh you know I think my people who are working with me, you know, it, it might be hard sometimes for them because yeah. I'm just like, you know, whenever something is like good and really good, I'm like, yeah, but I think we can do better. <laughs> and I think we can have another try and maybe film it from that angle or, or do it even better. And it's, um, yeah, it might, be, it might be sometimes really difficult for me, but I also enjoy, you know, trying to make especially my videos and my writing like as good as possible and like if you spend a lot of time with something it's always worth to you know go the extra mile and uh, make it perfect rather than just leaving it at a 90 percent um where you know that it could be 100 percent. and that's just my attitude to like either do it like full or um and uh with you know full um energy or you know not doing doing it at all yeah and i imagine your crew is there to kind of help you with that or are they saying come on that that was good enough let's move on sure i mean they they know me by now and uh, they know how i how my brain works a bit i would say which is which is definitely really helpful and um you know the crew i'm working together with them now for years and they were growing with me so um that's definitely cool but i definitely had a like quite some moments where they were saying yeah let's move on we 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 need to do other stuff and uh the time is short mm -hmm. but and, and where i said no i want to try this i want to get it perfect otherwise we we're not gonna we're not gonna move on and yeah sure it can be quite hard but they always you know understand uh the way of how I'm thinking and they I think they also like really trust me in the process and also for myself it's super important to have those people around me where I know well if I'm telling them I'm gonna do I don't know 20 more tries on that or even 50 more tries they know why you know it's gonna worth it yeah. and uh why I want to do that so having those people around is uh yeah definitely super important for me yeah 
Another really enthusiastic guest that I got to speak with in 2021 was Gene Hamilton. And Gene is a former pro downhill racer who created one of the first mountain bike skills courses in the late 1990s. His company today, Better Ride, holds clinics around the U.S. And he's taught many, many regular riders and also pros as well about how to ride fast. Gene and I spoke for nearly two hours. One of my favorite parts of our conversation was when Gene talked about showing up for his first mountain bike race ever. And he got into mountain bike racing actually uh, after he met Marla Streb, who was a professional mountain biker in the 1990s. I'm like, these guys are beginners. And I started looking at their legs and like, they've got calf muscles as big as my head, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> these guys are beginners. I'm like, uh oh, you know? Yeah. And then, so then the race starts and, and, um, I, we had pre-ridden the course. Marlon and I had pre-ridden that course. Um, the, I think the day before, or maybe a couple of days before. Um, so when we pre-rode the course and I thought this was going to be like the race on the climbs, we would chit chat. Mm-hmm. And then on the downhill, we would, you know, kind of bomb the downhill to the yeah, best of enduro our abilities. Style. Kind, yeah. Kind of enduro style. Right. So I thought that was what racing was like, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the gun goes off and these guys with calves as big as my head, they just start sprinting as hard as they can. And I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, it's like I'm immediately <laughs> in last place. And I, I remember snowboard racing is a 20 to 30 second event, right? Mm-hmm. I've never done an endurance sport in my life. And I know I've got asthma. You know, like I have an inhaler and everything, you know? Yeah. So all of a sudden I'm going as hard as I can and I, and it never relented. Yeah. You know, I was like, you know, I was expecting that we'd catch our breath at some point, but no, (laughs) you just go as hard as you freaking can for an hour and a half. Yeah. You know, and along the way, because I guess of my old BMX riding and probably more probably from snowboarding. I was passing a few people here and there in the downhills, you know, and as I recall, the numbers might be a little bit off, but there were 25 riders in my little beginner class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the way there, I'm expecting to win, you know, by a big margin. And I got 13th oh, out of wow. 25, right? Middle of the it's pack? Not exact bad. middle of the pack, right? <laughs> and honestly, it was one of the most proud days of my life in my sporting career. I mean, oh, I'd wow. won plenty of snowboard races, but snowboard races don't require the kind of commitment a cross country mountain bike race mm. does. Mm. And I had never pushed my body that hard in my life, you know? And honestly, I didn't know you could push your body that hard and not like have a heart attack or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just totally naive to the whole experience and you know, so yeah, I was really proud, you know, even though I expected to win and got 13th, you know, just the fact I didn't die was mm-hmm. kind of being right, you know, and I beat half of those shave leg kids with their, <laughs> with their, uh, clipless pedals, you know, I mean, I had toe clips. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jeez. My interview with Sean Madsen about mountain bike saddles has to be one of my favorites so far in terms of learning about mountain bike gear and equipment. And Sean is currently working for WTB as their saddle category manager, and he's really an expert in cycling biomechanics 
and has done a lot of groundbreaking studies about mountain bike fit and comfort and specifically saddles. And so it was really interesting to hear about some of the research that he and others have done on the topic of sit bones and how that translates into mountain bike saddle fit for riders. Here's what Sean shared with us about finding a mountain bike saddle that fits. Sometimes it can be very challenging. And prior to um, a lot of the work that I did developing sizing with my previous work, um, we didn't really know. And everyone kind of picked a as narrow a saddle as possible. But the reality is hmm. the, you know, the human crotch is not designed to bear weight, but we're going to sit on a bike seat. <laughs> right. Right. But we're going to sit on a bike seat. So how do we do that? How do we tackle that challenge? And the goal is, you know, what can bear our weight is bony structure. That's what's designed. Our bodies are designed to sit on our bones. And so we want to make sure that we are uh, supporting our mass on our, on our bone structure and not our soft tissue. And so that's, you know, that's kind of the first goal is, okay, I want to sit on my bones. Now, if I'm going to sit on my bones, what are those bones called? There's, you know, sit bones or ischial tuberosities, if we're going to be detailed about it. And those ischial tuberosities are very variable. So if I go in and measure, and I've done this, this was actually my master's thesis for physiology was measuring this, the variety, the variety out there is anywhere between 80 millimeters apart and 160 millimeters apart. So that's a really wide span. Whoa. That's when, when we started realizing that, when I published that thesis and then companies started looking at that and saying, oh, well, that's why a lot of people have trouble with saddles and some people <laughs> yeah. don't, is that we were making all our saddles, and this was industry-wide, we were making all of our saddles for one type of person. Hmm. And guess what? People aren't one type of people. There's a huge variety. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't just look at somebody either and say, okay, like you have wide or narrow sit bones. This is something like internal. It, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. The, the variety out there, it, it, there's no correlation between hip width, between pretty much anything and where these sit bones are. I've measured actually one of the widest people I've ever measured at 165 millimeters apart was an elite female runner that had this boyish, you know, figure of like a 12 year old boy. So very slender, very narrow, but her sit bones were very wide. I've also measured, you know, NFL football players that, you know, were massive individuals that had sit bones that were around 90 millimeters that were very narrow. So you really, you really can't tell. I mean, yes, those are sometimes the outliers and the bell-shaped curves of averages, but you really can't tell. And the goal isn't to to hit an average, right? Like, you know, one of the analogies I always draw is that the average man's foot is uh, a 42 and a half. Mm -hmm. Does that mean everyone wears 42 and a half shoes? <laughs> right. No. You know, we want to we want to custom tailor the experience for each rider, and each rider wants to know what what works for them, and what works for your buddy doesn't necessarily work for you, right. and that's okay. It's just figuring out. Oh, okay, I need to support on my sit bones. I don't want to 
I, you know, I shouldn't be going numb. I shouldn't be having, you know, issues where I can't sit on the saddle for an extended period of time. So I need to support those sit bones and I need to get a saddle up underneath those bones that help support that. So measuring is the gold standard. Uh, there's many different ways of measuring. We can measure with, uh, you know, foam pads. They're, they all have some variety of error. You know, there's, there's a couple tools out there that are more digital that, that are actually really accurate. When I did my initial work in all this, it was actually x-raying oh, wow. uh, and correlating a lot of this stuff to x-ray. So mm-hmm. we're able to see some, some very detailed-oriented stuff. But that's not you know, plausible in a bike shop setting. Obviously, you don't want to be doing that for, for average riders. Yeah. So you know, g- getting a measurement is, is the first start. And like I said, there's lots of different ways to do it. You know, working with somebody who's done a bunch of measurements so that they can be more repeatable and more accurate in their measuring will help. Mm-hmm. But again, you want the goal is to sit on your sit bones, not have any midline pressure, and then from there, there's a whole nother host of, of considerations because that's just one consideration of, of choosing the right saddle and that'll help you get to the right size. Some of the other considerations are soft tissue, right? And, and not meaning perineal soft tissue, but more like range of motion, flexibility, mm-hmm. all these things that can happen and, and influence you, the way you sit on the bike and the, and how you're using the bike also lend a, a, a way of how you're rotating your pelvis. So if you can imagine somebody who's got really good overall flexibility and they go to, you know, they're standing up and they go to put their, touch their toes and they can put their palms flat on the floor and their back is, you know, bent really far over. And that's, you know, their pelvis rotates really far. That's going to, influence how they sit on their saddle versus somebody who goes to touch their toes and can barely touch their knees, right? Yeah, makes sense. And so that that and and it's really not about their back, it's more about how much their pelvis rotates. And so we think about and how does it why does that influence riding is that when you pedal hard and we've all done this, you know, we have to climb up a steep hill, you know, that steep fire road or that steep grunty climb what do we do? We, Mm -hmm. you know, we, our torso comes way down. It's like, we're almost eating our stem, right? Our stems right up in our face. And we're, and some of it is to keep the front wheel down, but a lot of it is actually muscle recruitment. So when we, when we do this, what we're trying to do, our bodies inherently, and our brains are doing this, we're trying to recruit more glutes. Glutes are the uh, strongest single muscle in our body and they're used for hip extension, Mm -hmm. right? So if I think about um, the pedal stroke, most of our power comes out of our glutes and our quads from pushing down, right? We push right down on the pedals. Mm -hmm. And in a maximal situation, in a really hard effort, our bodies automatically find that position where we can, where we can grab that power. You know, another, another good analogy of visual is doing a squat, right? When you put the weight bar on your shoulders and you're going to do a squat, how is your back and your pelvis aligned when you're doing that squat? They're kind of tilted forward and your spine is nice and line Mm -hmm. and you're using those glutes to push that weight back up. It's the same thing in a pedal stroke. You don't have a, a rounded out spine, you know, and, and kind of slouching when you're trying to do a squat that turns off your glutes. 
but that if you if you have the ability to tilt your pelvis forward and and really recruit those glutes, that's going to influence obviously how you're sitting on the saddle and where your pelvis is contacting the saddle. So that's that's where we come into saddle shape, and this is you know a whole other whole other aspect of uh, choosing a saddle is you've got width, but then you've also have shape. So mm-hmm. saddle shapes, some are really flat and some have some good contour to them. And how do we choose between the two? And that's a tough, that's a tough call. And that's where, that's where the, the overall flexibility and stability uh, come into play. So if you have good flexibility, if you have good core stability, those types of things, you generally will tend towards a flatter shape because that shape will allow you to tilt your pelvis forward, um, which you have the ability to do. And conversely, if you are a little bit limited in your flexibility and stability, you'll tend to gravitate more towards a contoured shape or more of, you know, if you're viewing it from the side, a contoured shape, there's kind of a hammock in the middle of the saddle. It's kind of a cup. And it also can have some contour from left to right as well. Whereas flatter saddles, looking at them from the front, they're, they're not perfectly flat, but they're, they're much flatter than a contoured, than a contoured saddle as viewed from the side, tip to tail. Uh, and that allows that pelvic freedom. But again, if you don't have that pelvic freedom, then you want more of a cradle, which helps support your pelvis in that existing position. Perhaps my favorite mountain bike athlete interview of the year was with Christopher Blevins. And Christopher, as most of you probably know, became the first American to win a World Cup race since 1994. Tinker Juarez was the last. And so it's been it's been a long time since we've seen an American at the top of the podium. And I talked to Christopher, of course, about his racing, but we focused a lot about his work advocating for trails and the environment and a number of other issues. And I found it really fascinating to hear his perspective because he's a young athlete. um, And I think we're going to see the industry taking uh, going forward into the future. Here's Christopher talking about using his platform as an athlete to advocate for issues like climate change. Well, you know, first and foremost, like the opportunity I have um, as a bike racer, as someone who, who gets to ride 20 to 30 hours a week and call that my job yeah. is one of privilege. And it's one where I can learn so much through the bike. Like I started bike racing at a very high level when I was five years old. Yeah. Jeez. And you know, the bike has always been a classroom of sorts, you know, mm. and I'm just realizing now that the depth of, of learning that can come from, from riding, you know, or, or stopping, mm-hmm. to, you know, and looking around after a ride sometimes is really immense. And it's also like, you know, my experience riding and racing is very different than someone who's just getting into it for the first time. Mm. And that's, that's special, right? That the bike has such a diversity of experiences people can have. Mm-hmm. And now with that, you know, with the fact that I can learn so much through the bike, that's the opportunity that is truly a responsibility in some ways, but, but a, a special thing that I can, that I can undertake. Right. Mm. And I have a lot of indigenous friends on, on the Navajo nation. And, um, one in, in particular is who's on the, from the Blackfeet reservation, McKaylee Oliver, who's in the film mm-hmm. and learning about how the bike is 
a form of expression in, in culture for them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's the fundamental same, you know, feeling of just riding your bike. But on the Navajo Nation, the the trails that are there that people are, are building or rebuilding mm-hmm. were initially shepherd trails. The bike is just a way to continue that tradition. And it's something that is entirely beyond the bike, right? Like it really is. And it's what I'm talking about with a connection to the land. And there's no better people to learn from and to lead these conversations than indigenous peoples who've, you know, stewarded the land for centuries and, and have been yeah. forcibly removed at times. Right. Mm-hmm. So as far as that relates to, to riding your bike, you know, it's does, right. It's here. And it's like, yeah. it's one way to get out on the land and to have these conversations. So yeah, you know, there's, there's continued learning along this vein that I want to go on, but I've, I've, I'm fundamentally stepping into an understanding that like indigenous leadership and issues of, of the climate is really important. Over the years, I've interviewed a handful of CEOs in the bike industry. And this year, one of the most interesting conversations I had was with David Bilstrom, who's the CEO of Kitsbo. David was surprisingly open about their cost structure and how things like shipping costs factor into apparel prices and why specialty cycling apparel is particularly well-suited to domestic production. The entire industry is really um, beholden now to global shipping. Hmm. And again, an, you know, another example of what we all experienced during the pandemic. Um, you know, the shortages on various items across the spectrum was caused by those uh, what we might call shallow supply chains, mm-hmm. which is really a fancy word for saying there's a slow ship coming <laughs> from some foreign location and it has to get here. Then right. it has to clear customs. Then it has to get on a truck. Then it mm-hmm. has to go so on and so forth. So um, our rule of thumb is that if it goes by ship, it's going to cost us about 50 cents a shirt. Uh-huh. And if it goes by airplane, it's going to go uh, at about $2 a shirt. Oh, wow. And I often find people are shocked to hear that we use airplanes <laughs> to ship product. Mm-hmm. But in fact, um, this is this is one of the many ways that bulk manufacturing is inappropriate for specialty um, industries such as cycling mm-hmm. uh, and certainly for emerging brands. So until you're doing about 10 or $20 million worth of business, when you contact Vietnam or Bangladesh to make your clothes, mm-hmm. um, you are the smallest, smallest customer they have. Right. And when their manufacturing capacity gets squeezed by the big boys, mm-hmm. um, you're going to go to the back of the line, even though you ordered your clothes the previous Christmas. Oh, wow. So when you finally, your clothes are finally finished, then you pay for the air freight. Mm-hmm. And Kitspo is not alone in, in constantly and continually paying to air freight finished product from an overseas location to the U S in order to meet schedules. Yeah. It's nuts. (laughs) And think about that carbon footprint. We're spending jet fuel on shirts. (laughs) It just boggles the mind. These are many of the things I started to learn as I got into uh, Kitspo and instead of um, being on the outside of Kitspo. Yeah. And, uh, and there are multiple disadvantages. It's not just the shipping cost. Um, There is the fact that, um, most brands, not all, but most brands, the design work uh, is done in the United States, but but they can literally send a picture from their phone of a napkin sketch 
mm-hmm. to the factory in Vietnam. And they'll be happy to do all the product design in the detailed product design in Vietnam uh-huh. and then FedEx a sample. <laughs> and that has become seductive. But at the end of the day, it means that these brands in America, and I include Kitspo, Kitspo's first four, four or five years, we don't own the pattern. Mm. So, you know, I came up from a technology background. The idea that I would have a successful product, but I don't own the intellectual property, I can't even get a copy of it because it's locked up in the factory in Vietnam to make sure I don't switch factories. That's nuts too. Yeah. And then I mentioned a few moments ago that we have to make those orders 12 months in advance. Mm -hmm. In fact, nine months in advance, sometimes it's possible, especially as you get to become larger and more important to the factories. Mm -hmm. But um, for most brands, it's a 12 month product cycle. Wow. So the way I usually explain that part is I want you to imagine that I'm going to I'm going to place orders for shirts and I'm going to order uh, I have to order the minimum quantity is 300 or more likely 500 of each color. Mm-hmm. So while I'd like to offer five colors, I choose two because that's what I can afford. Right. Um, and I choose red and blue and I have to send them 30 percent of the money. I'm sorry, 70 percent of the money I have to send when I place my order. Wow. So. In January of 2020, I would need to send Vietnam 70% of the money on my 500 red shirts and my 500 blue shirts. Mm -hmm. I will receive those um, in October or November uh, if they come by ship. Mm -hmm. And before they are put on the shift, I have to pay the last 30%. Wow. So the cash flow here is that if we assume I have a 50% margin, and I'm buying those shirts. I've paid for 500 shirts, the mm-hmm. list price of 500 shirts, and I'm getting 500 red ones and 500 blue ones. Mm-hmm. I put those, I put those out on the internet. I put those out in stores. And the rule of thumb in the business is, if those don't sell, uh, like hotcakes, <laughs> in the first three to four weeks, then I start marking them down. Wow, because that's I've quick. got all the money tied up into them. Yeah. And I've got to get the cash back so that I can order some more shirts for next year. Right. And the dilemma is, let's say for no fault of my own and no way for anyone to predict it, the red shirts sell like hotcakes and I'm out in two weeks. Mm -hmm. The blue shirts languish. Right. So what the apparel industry does, generally speaking, is mark them down after three or four weeks, Mm -hmm. mark them down again, and then send them to the landfill. Oh, wow. Because they become so unprofitable that Mm -hmm. to try to get rid of them in any other way is just adding more transportation cost. Right. Because I would have to ship them to somebody else. Right. And believe me, I've got to pay for the shipping. So to cut my costs, they go to the landfill. There are some industry experts that estimate as much as 30% of all the finished goods and apparel made worldwide go to landfill. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That's a lot. It's a lot of shirts. It's, it's It's incredible. And of course, you know, it's disgusting in, in this age mm. that some people are going unclothed and uh, all of us are suffering from the environmental damage of, of trashing those clothes. Yeah. So, so there's, a double, there's a double jeopardy. Remember the, the red shirts that sold like hotcakes? Yeah. I'm nine months to reorder those to get more. Right. <laughs> and when they arrive, we spin the roulette wheel again. Now red's out of favor. So I tell everyone that if you're good at that kind of bulk manufacturing in apparel, 
then you probably are in the wrong job and you should work in Las Vegas. Finally, one of my favorite conversations from the year was with Dr. Adam Fanuff, who's a doctor who's a doctor of chiropractic with a degree in exercise science. Uh, he and I spoke actually twice this year on the podcast. And in our first conversation, I asked him how mountain bikers can tell if their bars are too wide. Here's what he had to say. The age old, uh, age old kind of adage of if you're clipping trees consistently, then your bars are probably too wide. <laughs> Definitely rings yeah. true. That's <laughs> how I go too, but... Yeah, that's that's my rule of thumb. But the problem is all my trails are so narrow here. I'd be running like 600 millimeter bars and right? that's not going to cut it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, it really bar width, it does have a lot of nuance. You have to you have to look at, you know, look at your riding style. Are you really mm -hmm. are you and what you really like to ride? Are you kind of just do you really like just like smash down trails and mm -hmm. be in that kind of retracted shoulder position constantly? Um, well, then, you know, then a wider bar is probably going to suit you a little bit better. Um, mm. Are you looking for a combination of, you know, are you trying to improve your handling a little bit is if your bike is feeling a little sluggish or if you're, you know, having trouble negotiating all the switchbacks on your local trail system uh, mm -hmm. without hitting your knees, <laughs> then, you know, <laughs> we might be looking at looking at a shorter bar. Um, yeah. The, again, there's a lot of nuance, but you know, I think that most people can run a little shorter than what comes stock for them or what they, mm, what they, okay. what they try and run. Um, yeah. there's, I mean, there's a whole range of, of, you know, proportions and whatnot. So there's no hard and fast rule. I know there's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of opinions and even some formulas out there for determining bar width. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, they're all based on assumptions about body proportions and bike geometry and those yeah. just vary so much. So, um, you know, wider isn't always necessarily better. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, there are even big riders who probably could use more than an 800 millimeter bar. Um, yeah. so I've um, tested bars with eight twenties. I mean, they're, they keep going up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, those, especially those extremes are, have been yeah. underserved in the past for, mm -hmm. you know, really big, uh, and really small riders. Um, and I think, you know, now that we're kind of starting to see that economy of scale kind of improve, mm -hmm. um, and more people are riding. Uh, I think there's more offerings for things that match. Um, yeah. But I mean, if you look at if you if you look at uh, if you look at any like pro lineup, whether it's like a downhill race, enduro race, cross country race, mm -hmm. the bar width is all over the board, um, mm, and a yeah. lot of it has to do with proportions. Um, and uh, again, uh, some people just really like being in a really you know retracted sh you know shoulder position. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 problem that we run into is when we go too wide we do start to get into this position where we're in such a deep shoulder retraction from the get-go just to be in a, a, a balanced position on the bike that mm -hmm. we're actually losing leverage from our shoulder we're actually mm -hmm. putting our shoulder at a mechanical disadvantage and that's that's something that that i try to look for uh when when uh we're fitting like somebody with, uh, with what, who has wide bars and who's like either complaining of shoulder pain or is looking to improve their handling. Um, those, um, you know, those wider bars really do, they facilitate a lot of elbow bend right off the mm -hmm. bat. So, and if yeah. that's not something, if that's not what they've, you know, if that's not how they like to move or that's not their, their position during their, in their riding style, then, then that's something that we have to change. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you make a good point that um, a lot of folks maybe could go a little narrower than whatever their stock uh, bar is. And I'm sure that's on purpose, right? I mean, bike companies are going to put the widest bar that they think people are going to need. And then obviously right. you can cut them down. But I guess a lot of us don't, don't think to do that. We're like, I paid for this whole bar. I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not taking any, yeah. any pieces off I, of it. I am not letting one piece of this go. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think bike manufacturers, they do, they are trying to, they're trying to serve the most people. So they're not mm-hmm. going to, yeah, they're not going to spec a, a bar that's going to be too narrow uh, for right. a handful of people. They're they're going with the the greatest common denominator, mm-hmm. and then you know I think there is some expectation that we fine tune bar width uh, as we go. Um, and it can again, it can be something you know you don't have to you know you don't have to bite off a lot right off the bat. You can mm-hmm. you know you can experiment with it a little bit, um, and you can make small incremental changes. I think that you know especially in bike fit, if we do have to make a large change if there's some if there's a big change that we have to make during uh during our session often i won't make that entire change right away we'll meet mm. we'll kind of meet halfway and we'll you know get some time on the bike and then we will uh we'll come back and revisit the fit and then kind of make some more change of course those aren't all of the conversations we had and even the ones we included here that was just a short portion of the interview. So if you missed any of these shows or want to hear more, be sure to go back and find the episodes online. Most single tracks podcast episodes are about an hour long. And so we're able to really dive in and get a lot of details on a number of topics from around the mountain bike world. Be sure to follow the single tracks podcast if you aren't already, because for 2022, we've already got a slate of really interesting interviews all lined up. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week and next year. Peace.